Testing, testing, one, two, three. Well, it looks like we're up and running again. This is Gary Meese, <clears throat> author of three books about the West Memphis Three killings, um, Blood on Black, Where the Monsters Go, and a combined version called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. All the books are available on Amazon, and uh, I'm going to be quoting pretty liberally from those books uh, over the course of this podcast. But I am going to, we are going to get into some other things besides specifically what's in the books. Um, I keep coming across this allegation that uh, the West Memphis Three case was a case of satanic panic uh, with the insinuation or outright accusation uh, being that uh, there's no validity to, to, the, to the charges against Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly because uh, there, were, there were these occult influences that were alleged in, in the commission of the crimes. Um, I think this is a, a gross misunderstanding of the case and also a gross misunderstanding of satanic panic. Though if you want to f define the term extremely loosely, I guess you could throw just about any case in, into satanic panic. But... Um, Let's talk about the press coverage because the idea that sat satanic panic was fueled by press coverage of the case uh, as if, you know, they were out looking for Satanist and they found Damien Eccles. Now, I'm not going to read everything that was written in the press. Uh, starting from the date of the killings until whenever, but let's let's look at uh, what the press coverage actually was uh, in terms of headlines. I, I wrote headlines for many years, so basically, what you see in the headlines is what m most people are going to read and remember, uh, and it gives the gist of the story. So. Let's presume if they're out looking for Satanists, that the word Satanist would some would be likely to pop, or, or occultist or uh, devil worshippers or something would be popping up in some of these headlines. Here are the headlines from from May and June, and I may I, you know I'll I'll do a cutoff at some point, but you know we're we're gonna from the time of the killings up through the arrest and and, and beyond to a certain point, just just to make the point. Uh, this is from the uh, West Memphis Evening Times. I'll read the commercial appeal headlines after this, and we'll go over this with them. It says, uh, May 6, 1993, missing. Police, others, Combe City in search of three boys. May 7, 1993, murdered boys found in Bayou. Wait ends in horror for families. Teachers greet kids with hugs reassurance. 
May 11, 1993. Funeral services set this week for three murdered eight-year-olds. Also, police still confident they'll solve murders. Donations push, push reward fund near $25,000 mark. Take note that uh, this is on May 11th, which would have been uh, the Tuesday after the killings. Uh, there are some, some allege that uh, some of the, one of the main witnesses, Marlene Hollingsworth, came forward when she heard about this, this uh, reward, and that was her motivation. Well, you know, I'm, in terms of the local press, it didn't. It hadn't reached. It hadn't reached the public until, when I say local, I mean the West Memphis Press until May 11th, which was two days after Narlene Hollingsworth first contacted uh, the West Memphis Police Department about seeing Damien Eccles walking along the service road, very close to where the killings occurred, uh, on the evening that the mur that he killed the boys. Uh, oh, another headline from that date. Murder trauma touches community, specialist says. Okay, May 12, 1993. Family friends attend funeral for young victim. National TV will focus on slaying. Slayings. Uh, May 13, 1993. Crime lab visits scene of murders. May 14, 1993. Songs says farewell to victim. Uh, I worked at the... West Memphis Evening Times, quite a bit later, and I have to say they had trouble with subject-verb-agreement then, too. <laughs> not me, but the, some of the other staffers. Songs says, and not my reporters. Uh, anyway, uh, who are highly, very, very competent folks. May 17, 1993, calls pour in to West Memphis, WM West Memphis Police after broadcast. Uh, May 18, 1993, reward fund still growing. May 19, chase, uh, uh, chase arrest proved false lead in murder case. May 20th, investigation continues. Donations go to families. May 21st, little new in murder, police say. May 24th, Living Memorial Plan for Three Murder Victims. May 26th, JP, that's Justice of the Peace, I think, uh, irate with Drug Task Force, decision near on DTF probe. Uh, also, donation fund for families will close out this week. May 27th, murders bring back painful memories for local family. May 28, 1993. No improprieties during auction, DTF member says of allegation. Uh, benefit raises funds for families. June 3rd. Take care, mother tells others. Now, June 3rd is when Jesse Muskelly, on that very same day, Jesse Muskelly was uh, going to be giving his... Uh, confessions to the local police, but it, that the uh, that wouldn't show up until the next day, June 4th, 1993. Three teens held in boy's death. Also, son innocent, father says after arrest. Parents relieved at arrest, and I'm 
sure they were talking about the parents of the murdered children. Now, May, now June 7th, 1993, rumors of evil demand action. Court, crowd fills courtroom for hearing. Satanism rumors are no surprise to neighborhood. Now, there was nothing about Satanism or rumors of evil or anything, anything of that nature until after the arrest of three boys, one of whom described occult rituals as something he was participating in with the other two in his confession. And the and another and the so-called ringleader, which I'm not really sure he was, but he certainly was a prime instigator. Uh, Damien Eccles uh, was not not only an admitted witch, but he was seemed to be rather proud of the fact that he was a witch and could, went out of his way to boast to the local police about his involvement in the occult. He also did this with other other uh, folks. Now, on June eighth. We get this headline, Satanism rumors all unfounded, beset Lakeshore resident says, I think that's uh, Diane Tier, Dominie's mother. I, I could look at the story, but I, as I recall, that that's who was saying that Satanism rumors were all unfounded. Now, Diane Tier, and I'm certainly not suggesting she was a Satanist. Uh, you want to be strict about it? I'm not so sure that Depending on how you want to define Satanist, I'm not sure Damien Eccles would would, would, be, would be called a Satanist. Um, he certainly, you know, there's some evidence that he actually did. Miskelly was under the impression that he was attending Satanist uh, rituals, and, and he may well have been. I, I don't doubt that he was. But... Um, you know, he liked to say he was a, um, a, a Wiccan. And Wiccans aren't Satanist. I would never, I'm not going to suggest that. But uh, Diane Teer loaned her witchcraft books to Damien Eccles. She uh, had tarot cards, or tarot, however you want to pronounce that, cards. Uh, that she talked about with uh, John Fogelman, I believe, and uh, also, I believe she talked to Fogelman. And I and and I'm in the interview anyway. And in the interview, she also described rune stones, which are a divination tool, uh, which he had obviously never heard of before, which isn't too surprising. So it's not as if she was just totally ignorant and innocent of various occult beliefs. Um, other headlines from June 8th. Parents' watchful eyes don't stray from children and murder questions remain unanswered. And let's see, uh, I'll skip ahead. There's some, uh, well, actually these are pretty good. June, June 9th, Companion says Miss Skelly was in Dias on night of murders. June 10th, Eccles treated for drug overdose. June 11th, local churches moving against possible Satanism. So the local churches got mobilized after 
Jesse Miskelly did this confession in which he talked about being involved in these satanic rituals and uh, with two boys with whom he later uh, with whom he later murdered three small children out in a remote woods. I wonder why the churches would be upset about that. I can't imagine why the churches would be involved, be concerned about young Satanists going out and killing small children. I just can't quite can't quite understand that. Irony alert. Uh, and then. <laughs> uh, they don't have a whole lot on this until November 17th. Judge orders trial as, as adult for suspect. Court airs complaints about drug task force. The drug task force is not really that relevant to this case. But uh, November 18th, divers find knife near suspect's trailer. Uh, and June 19th, Miss Kelly trial gets underway today. Uh, let's see if there's any mention of Satanism after this. It's mostly a, uh, about uh, they, they obviously they were covering the, covering the case. Uh, here here uh, February twenty fifth, nineteen ninety four. Cult expert Wiccans clash at seminar. Honestly, the Wiccans probably should have stayed out of the argument, uh, but anyway, that's beside the point, uh, or not totally beside the point. Uh, March 8th, prosecutors began to build cult theory for murder case. March 18th. This is interesting. Spectators say religion overplayed in murders. Uh, with also the headline, a cult not a factor, Miskelly juror says. <laughs> that seems to be running totally against counter to the, the uh, satanic panic narrative. Uh, and then uh, March 22nd, Tucker's death row is new home for Eccles. Well, that's taken care of. That they that was the coverage from the West Memphis Evening Times. I think the coverage from the No Offense to the Evening Times, but I think the Commercial Appeal probably threw up put more resources into this. But anyway, because um, they had more resources, and I worked at both newspapers, but. Uh, did not work at the Evening Times at that time. And my source for this, I'm having a problem with a pop-up here. Uh, hold on just a second. Let's hope this doesn't continue happening. I'll, I'll, I'll have to forget about this particular tangent. Um, okay, this is from the uh, Commercial Appeals articles, and I'm going to read what... June, uh, May, uh, May 7th, 1993, mutilated boys with three bodies found in Bayou. May 7th, playground irresistible to kids. May 8th, autopsy show three boys died of multiple blows. 
May 8th, tragic loss. West Memphis deaths pose a challenge. May 8th, counselors help school deal with its grief. May 8th, FBI asks for a profile of suspect. May 9th, police optimistic on several leads in boys slaying. May 9th, pain tells how much life three slain boys had. May 10th, faith helps slain boys' family face abiding grief. Uh, just, if, just think if it was abiding on May 10th, how abiding it is today. Anyway, um, May 10th, uh, boost in employees, budget helps Arkansas, Arkansas crime lab cut backlog. May 11th, interviews aid case and Arkansas boys' deaths. May 12th, West Memphis mourns slain boys' funeral. May 13th, Arkansas police report little progress in solving slayings. May 14th, tent protects West Memphis crime scene in Clue Hunt. That's a reference to the luminol uh, test testing that went on, which did find traces of blood at the, the kill site, counter to a lot of the claims that have been made over the years that no blood was found at the scene, etc., which is, is just simply not true, and there's no facts to back that up. Uh, there was not a lot of visible blood there. Absolutely true. Maybe none. Um, May 15th, Almond sort clues in deaths of three boys. May 16th, search goes on in slayings of three boys. May 20th, phone appeals for families probe reward fund at $32,000. May 26th, scouts launch reading grove plan. May 29th, lab offers nothing new in slayings. May 29th, fund for slain boys' families tops $19,000. And then we get into June. June 3rd, watch over your children. Slain boys' mom addresses school. That was on June 3rd. Uh, and then uh, authorities wonder if six kids' deaths related, which involves uh, another case in uh, Arkansas. They were casting about looking for all sorts of connections. Then here we go. And so so far up to this point in the commercial appeals coverage, in terms of headlines, you've had zero mention of, of the occult, zero mention of uh, Satan, Satan, zero mention of witches, zero mention of Wiccans, zero mention of really anything to do with uh, this being some sort of satanic crime. And here we go. Uh, on June 5th, three teens charged with murder and slayings. June 5th, outburst in court by victim's dad. June 5th, one suspect was scary, talked of worshiping the devil. See, one of the suspects, one of the suspects was scary and talked of worshiping the devil, and that's the first inkling we have that, that there's some sort of so-called satanic panic going on in West Memphis. And this, this was the result of 
a scary suspect who went around talking of worship, who went around and talked of talking of worshiping the devil. Uh, June, June 5th, police comments, press conference. And June 5th, sequence of events. Uh, June 5th, shy and artistic, but not into that devil stuff. Speaking of, this is Dalt Baldwin and what his family said about him. June 5th, tough, a bit troubled, but kind to kids concerning Miss Kelly. Uh, June 6th, evil worship debated in slayings. Again, none of this talk of evil worship came up until after the arrest. June 7th, excerpts from June 3rd statement. Uh, June 7th, officials find signs of cult activity Crittenden sites. Uh, June 7th, where's my client, attorney ask. <laughs> <coughs> June 7th, teen describes cult torture of boys. So the source of the cult torture was the teen who described it with resulting so-called satanic panic in the community. June 8th, relatives, lawyers dispute account by Miskelly. Uh, June 9th, did not kill three boys, teen writes from jail. That's Miskelly trying to reassure his family that he wasn't involved. Well, and he continued this bifurcated strategy for quite some time where he described himself to family and friends as totally innocent while he's talking to his, his attorney as if he's totally guilty. That is until September or so when they came upon the uh, false confession uh, ploy uh, and uh, decided that, oh, well, gee, he really was coerced into saying all the things he said, which again doesn't explain the multiple confessions he gave after his conviction. Let's see. Uh, June 10th, Slain Boy's dad fears West Memphis cultists knew a plan. June 10th, Damien's girlfriend may face DHS action. June 11th, suspect Damien survives overdose. June 13th, cult experts gave warning in 1992. June 13th, satanic dabblers can become deadly disciples. June 15th, teens lawyers want to see evidence. June 16th, defense sees evidence against Ar Arkansas suspects. Uh, June 17th, burglary reports sealed in case of slain boys. Uh, June 23rd, West Memphis cases go to circuit court. June 24th, slaying suspects ask for samples. June 26th, Ms. Kelly's lawyers plan to fight DNA sample efforts. June, t a little irony there at this point, when now that, you know, uh, they want to take a DNA sample and Ms. Kelly who told every who told the cops he'd, he'd done it and 
great detail, not great detail, but enough detail, plenty of detail, quite a bit of detail. Uh, doesn't want to offer a DNA sample, which presumably if he wasn't there, then why would he be fighting a, getting a DNA sample? All it would do is at least show that, you know, there was, if there would be no match, right? We don't know if there, there that, that would at least build his case. And in fact, there is no DNA evidence tying Miskelly to the scene that we're aware of. Of course, most, quite a bit of DNA evidence is, is in the hands of the defense and it's not been released to the public. And they chose not to release it to the public and instead bargained for a, a plea deal back in uh, 2011. Which leads me and some others to conclude that perhaps the, the DNA evidence that was gathered and the results weren't quite what the uh, defense was hoping for. Uh, June 29, 1993, commercial appeal. Lawyers allege illegal search of Baldwin's home. Lawyers allege a lot of things. <laughs> That's kind of what they get paid for. In July, July 1993, judge to hear motions in Arkansas slain case. Uh, July 14th, murder suspect seeks own trial. June, uh, July 27th, venue change sought. July 30th, West, slain West Memphis boy's father to confront witches. And... August 2nd, 1993, Pagan's Foes Awaken Streets of Jonesboro. Uh, that was, there was a, uh, an occult store, occult bookstore that wanted, that had opened in Jonesboro, uh, I think right before the killings, just a month or two before. And, at, you know, some sort of modest effort. And, uh, you know, I don't know if they were actually a, presenting themselves as a Wiccan bookshop or just a new age bookshop with Wiccan books. But anyway, uh, they, uh, after uh, this case came out, the, the their landlord wanted them out of the building. They got into a dispute with this. Uh, they claimed they were being discriminated against, and so the pagans, pagans were marching through the streets of Jonesboro. Now, you know, if you listen to, to what people talk, the way people talk about this area, you would think that the pagans would be scared to even step out on the streets because of all the, the crazy fundamentalists who would grab their pitchforks, and come chase them down, and you know, string them up. Uh, you know, in, in time-honored Arkansas fashion. And apparently the pagans felt comfortable enough in Jonesboro to have their own store, to seek their own store, to complain when they're not treated the way they want, and to actually march in the streets. Uh, there were uh, church groups that did a counter-protest of the protest of the pagans. Anyway, that's what that's all about. And as I recall, John Mark Byers somehow got involved in that. Um, anyway, that was an August 2nd. August 4th, hearing due today for three and slaying of three Arkansas boys. August 5th, three plead not guilty, one gets own trial in boys' deaths. 
August 5th, Raymond of Use and Mary and Quiet, but tense. Uh, August 19th, Arkansas opposes trial move. August 29th, lawyers look at coverage of slaying in West Memphis. Slayings in West Memphis. June 15th, Arkansas prosecutor subpoena friends, family of Eccles. Uh, June 16th, experts speak out versus court, fi court file seals. Uh, two... Um, September 18th, two or three defendants in triple slaying as venue change. Uh, June 20, uh, no, September 21st, taxpayers may foot legal bills. Lawyers want fees. Of course they do. They always want fees. I don't blame them. Uh, but they're pretty much in it for the money, aren't they? Anyway, uh, I lost my place here. Okay, June 24th, attorneys poll residents to help get trial moved. Uh, September 25th, new newspaper seeks open court record in West Memphis triple slaying case. September 25th, slain West Memphis boys remembered. Uh, September 26th, Grove concerning the Weaver Elementary Reading Grove that the... Uh, that was built as a memorial to the three boys, to uh, Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers. Uh, September 27th, stack of motions faces judge in the Arkansas case. September 28th, judge denies separate trials for two, keen, two teens and boys slaying. I may skip over some of this, but anyway, and we'll get it just about the time I get over to skip stuff, we get into it. June, uh, September 28th, defense lawyer brings out new allegation concerning uh, Dominique Tear, apparently. Uh, June 29th, occult publications draw scrutiny and triple slaying. This was the, uh, uh, the publications by uh, Dominique's cousin, T.J., tier in California in which she had a, um, a, a, a zine as it was known then a small ma magazine type publication uh, that was basically with a horror theme uh, and uh, she she was involved in the occult and uh, she's involved still involved with that in some level and describes herself as a as a furry and a uh, and a vampire and a panda, a vampire panda or giant red panda vampire, or some something equally something equally strange. But anyway, uh, which more you know, it's her. It's a free country, but uh, the occult public uh, June 29th, I mean uh, September 29th, the pulp pub occult publications draw scrutiny in triple slaying. You know, and this is a case where this, this in this aspect of the case, there seemed to be some, there were some occult ties there beyond just what what was known about Eccles. And it, I, you know, considering everything else that went on, it, it's not exactly overplayed in the press. Uh, it apparently wasn't even covered in the Evening Times. 
Okay. On to October. October 11th. Can Jonesboro seat an unbiased jury in satanic slayings is the question. Uh, October 12th. Block teen account of three slayings, lawyer says. Uh, October 16th. Defense denies sodomy of three boys. Uh, October 20th, try Baldwin as adult. Jury says violence exhibited. October 27th, Halloween no treat for many after slayings linked to a cult. And October, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, October 28th, questioning of officers saw it. Uh, in November, November 16th, defense counsel says Miss Kelly retarded. Uh, November 17th, Miss Kelly to face trial as, I, as adult. IQ called borderline. Um, November 18th, divers find knife near ex-home of Baldwin. Uh, back into, on to December. You know, we see we have whole months that go by with no satanic panic in the press to speak of. Uh, December, and, and before that, the last one was an, pretty much the last thing was an unforced error with the Tier family. Um, well, there was some stuff about Halloween, but anyway, uh, December 22nd, Miskelly judgmentally fit, faces death if convicted. Uh, December 26th, Baldwin interview brings subpoena. Let's see if there's, let's skip ahead on these January things because the trials get started. Uh, January 16th, prosecutor realizes his, he has his hands full. Young defenders rely on their zeal. January 27th, this is the headline, <coughs> excuse me, mild curiosity marks town's response to news rush. <laughs> it doesn't sound like satanic panic to me. Uh, the, uh, January 28th, detective says Miss Kelly confessed hearing Pal's plot. Uh, January 29th, Miss Kelly friend says they attended cult event. This is the Vicky Vicky uh, Hutchison uh, Aspat uh, testimony. Let's see, on and on. I'm trying to get see if there's anything else, and I'm rather than going all over this. I'm, I mean, I'm all the way through the trial, and I'm I'm very little so in during this, this trial concerning. Uh, on the headlines concerning the occult. February 17th, club-like tree limb discovered at trailer. That was a reporter found a one of um, Echoes occult occult sticks. 
at uh, his parents' trailer. Let's see, uh, February 20th, second trial may explore motive and triple slaying. Uh, February 27th, Damien Eccles may be trouble, but he's not killer, some say. Uh, 27th, grisly accusations ignite emotions of Baldwin's friend's kin. Suspense grips Jonesboro Courthouse, but it doesn't say it was because of satanic panic. Now, let's see. Ritual crime debate on March 9th. Witness call. Witness calls boy's death the work of group with trappings of the occult that is the that is the headline on dale griffiths ritual crime debate growing in in face of increased interest of investigators that was march 9th Eccles, uh, March 10th, Eccles takes stand, denies killing boys, any part in Satanism. So, he, you know, it, at the same time, he did describe his occult beliefs and well, went out of his way to talk about Aleister Crowley. Well, he went out of his way to try not to talk about Aleister Crowley and then went out of his way to talk about him. But anyway, uh March 10th, calm testimony disarms many who expected monster. March 11th, state's grilling probes Eccles calm exterior. March 12th, expert disputes occult label. March 12th, buyers feels better after countering suspicion. March 13th, witness accuser says police ignore fraud concerning Vicki Hutchison. Let's see. And so anyway, that is, that is the... coverage on the satanic panic there's, there's you know we could get into a little bit more get into some later stuff but i'm not going to do that what i am going to do is cover some of one of the chapters in blood on black i've got um i've got some earlier chapters in the book that really give the background of uh, give the background of Damien Eccles his childhood what various people had to say about him his own his own recollections to various his various trips to mental institutions and assessments and so forth 
uh, I'm going to get in, I'm going to backtrack and get into those later, but I, I wanted to describe the, the initial crime and the initial investigation first. So I, that came in a chapter uh, a little bit later in the book after I'd given in some of the background. And anyway, here goes. I'm going to go over this for maybe 30 minutes, however far we get, and then I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, I'm not going to go more than an hour or so, and we'll wrap it up for this week, and then I'll be back again in a week or so, and perhaps we'll finish this and perhaps not, depending on how things go. I've got plenty of time. Uh, I'm willing to go through the, um, my intention is to go through the whole case, and it's just simply going to take a very long time to do that. Anyway, in late afternoon, but long before sunset, Jesse Miskelly Jr. stuck his bottle of Evan Williams whiskey into his pants and began the short walk from Highland Park to Lakeshore. His friend Jason Baldwin had called him that week and set up a rendezvous for Wednesday. Damien Eccles was waiting with Jason along the road just outside Lakeshore. Lakeshore being the trailer park where uh, Baldwin lived. Jason had just gotten through cutting his uncle's lawn. They had beer. Jesse and Damien had little in common. Jesse thought Damien was weird. Damien thought of Jesse as crude, simple, and thuggish. Nonetheless, Jason and Damien had talked Jesse into going along with their plan to go into West Memphis and beat up some boys. The three walked about two miles to woods behind the Blue Beacon car wash, truck wash, one of many businesses along the service road where Interstate 40 and Interstate 55 joined briefly in West Memphis. The afternoon of May 5th was warm and humid. It was cooler in heavily wooded Robin Hood Hills. They drank and waited on their victims. Eccles was well acquainted with the woods, having lived in the Mayfair apartments just across the Ten Mile Bayou. He walked through the area frequently in his travels between his parents' trailer and Lakeshore and had been seen exploring the woods recently. Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers lived in the lower middle class neighborhood of single family homes just south of the woods. The second graders were all just eight years old. Chris and Michael lived across the street from each other, right next to the school. After a typical Wednesday at Beaver Elementary School, Michael and Stevie began pedaling their bicycles around the neighborhood. Michael, proudly wearing his Cub Scout uniform, was riding a 20-inch black renegade bicycle. Stevie was riding a green bicycle he had received two weeks earlier from his grandfather, Jackie Hicks. Stevie's mother, Pam Hobbs, had picked Stevie up earlier at school around 2.55 and walked home. Um, Pam Hobbs was not driving at this time, so that's why they walked home. Uh, Michael showed up at the Hobbs house and asked if Stevie could come over to play. Pam told Stevie that he needed to be home by 4.30 before she left for work. He did not return at that time. Stevie's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, drove his wife to her shift at the Catfish Island restaurant shortly before 5 after a brief search for Stevie. 
Terry looked further for Stevie after dropping Pam off at work. Pam first learned Stevie was still missing when Terry picked her up after work at nine. Michael's mother, Dana Moore, had first seen her son around 310, 10 minutes after school got out. She saw Michael with Stevie occasionally throughout the afternoon. She saw all three of them together around 6 p.m. Chris and Stevie were sharing a ride as they tooled around East Barton and 14th Street. The Moore family lived at Barton and 14th. The Hobbs family lived several blocks south at 1601 South Macaulay. Michael's father was out of town on his trucking job. Mrs. Moore asked her daughter Dawn to tell Michael to come eat supper. He was supposed to be home, quote, before the streetlight comes on, around supper time, around 6 p.m. Dawn saw Michael in the distance but couldn't catch up. When Dawn failed to bring Michael home, Dana first searched for Michael and then stayed home, hoping he would arrive, meanwhile contacting the other families and the police. While running errands, Mark Byers had spotted his adopted son, Christopher, skateboarding on the street, taken him home, spanked him with a belt, and ordered him to clean up the carport. Mark left on another errand around 5.30. Melissa Byers had last seen Christopher around 5.30 or a quarter to six under the carport. When his mother found Christopher gone, she thought he had just gone next door to play. Mark quickly grew alarmed when he discovered his son was missing. Byers was the first to call the police, soon followed by the other two families. Byers searched intensively all evening into the early morning hours. Neighbor, neighbor Deborah Otinger saw the three boys walking through her yard about between 5.45 and 6, pushing a bicycle. Between 6.30 and 6.45, another neighbor, Brian Woody, saw four boys going into Robin Hood Hills. Two of the boys were pushing bicycles, another had a skateboard, and a fourth trail behind. His concerns grew as the sun set with no sign of the boys. <clears throat> Parents, relatives, and friends, joined for a while by police, searched much of the night. They would not find them. Jesse Miskelly later described what happened. When the boys entered the woods, Jesse and Jason hid while Damien lured them by making noises. When the children were close, the teens jumped the boys and began beating them viciously. The attack occurred on the banks of a muddy ditch about two feet deep after recent rains. Their screams and cries for help were muffled by the embankment, woods, and noisy interstate. Shirts were stuffed into the boys' mouths. The little boys did not offer much resistance. They were overwhelmed. They were like whipped puppies. That's according to Miss Kelly. Michael tried to escape, but Jesse ran him down and brought him back, quickly beating him unconscious. The boys were stripped. Jason pulled out a knife and gouged a huge cut into the left side of Stevie's face, as Jesse later told it. Then Jason fell upon Christopher and castrated the boy, who quickly bled out. Jason and Damien began sex play with the little boys, Miss Kelly told police. Damien masturbated over one and ejaculated onto the boy's pants. The boys were bound with their own shoelaces, left 
wrist to left ankle, right wrist to right ankle, and thrown into the muddy ditch. Christopher had already bled to death. Stevie and Michael, mortally wounded but alive, drowned. Jesse ran from the scene, fell ill under an interstate overpass, and angrily broke his whiskey bottle against concrete. He walked the rest of the way home. Jason later called Jesse and asked why he left so early. Jason showed up at home around nine. Damien was spotted walking along the service road near the crime scene in muddy clothes at about 9.30. The search for the boys widened the next morning with police and other agencies joining. The West Memphis Police Department held a briefing around 8 a.m. and sent out detectives. The Crittenden County Search and Rescue Unit was heavily involved. Around 1.45 p.m., searchers discovered a small tennis shoe floating in a ditch that drained into Ten Mile Bayou, an irrigation canal that eventually drained into the Mississippi River. Mike Allen walked along the bank, Detective Mike Allen walked along the bank where the tennis shoe had been found. He noticed that one area of the bank was cleared of leaves while the rest was covered with leaves and sticks. He described the cleared area as slick, but having scuffs. Opposite the slicked-off bank, toward the Blue Beacon and the interstate, was a high bank, a kind of bluff. Allen awkwardly positioned himself to get the shoe and fell into the water. To his horror, he felt Michael's body rise to the surface. Policeman John Moore saw blood in the water, but none on the bank. Detective Brian Ridge volunteered to methodically search the ditch by hand, soon finding the corpses of Christopher and Stevie about 25 feet downstream. Ridge described the search, quote, I got into the water north of the bodies, north of the victim that had been located, who was, we discovered, was Michael Moore, and I proceeded to work my way through the water, through the ditch, and being careful not to destroy any evidence, I was searching the bottom of the ditch as my as I made my way to the body. I found some clothing items. The clothes jammed into the mud with sticks were piled on the bank. The bodies had been submerged for 18, 19 hours. Michael's body was discovered about 1.45 p.m., about an hour after its discovery, the body was removed from the water. Ridge discovered the bodies of Stevie at 2.56 and of Christopher at 2.59. The bodies were placed on the bank covered in black plastic. Coroner Kent Hale received a call at 3.20. He arrived at, and mind you, this is before cell phones. Uh, communication was a little more difficult back in the day. He arrived at 3.55 and pronounced the boys dead one by one. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Their bodies had been exposed to heat, insects, and the elements for about an hour. Heat combined with immersion overnight in cool water made the use of body temperature to determine time of death problematic. The bodies of Chris and Stevie were found face down in the trash-strewn muck. Michael's body came up left side up, and he was apparently placed lying on his right side. Ridge collected the clothes, 
three tennis shoes, and a Cub Scout cap floating in the water. Most of the clothes were jammed in the mud. One stick, for example, had a shirt wrapped around the end stuck into the mud. There was little other physical evidence. Police quickly set up a barrier tape at the perimeter and made a new path to this site to preserve evidence. The bodies were sent to the state medical examiner's office in Little Rock. All three corpses' right hands were tied to their right feet. Their left hands were tied to their left feet by black and white shoelaces. Michael Moore's body had wounds to the neck, chest, and abdominal regions, apparently caused by a serrated knife, as well as scalp abrasions that could have been caused by a stick. Dr. Frank Peretti, a state medical examiner, reported Michael was still alive when he was placed in the water as there was evidence of drowning. Michael had several deep gouges in the top of his skull with more traumatic head injuries than the other two, though he did not show other extensive wounding. There were no stab wounds. There was little evidence that he struggled with his bonds. There were few defensive wounds, indicating he was quickly rendered unconscious. Stevie's corpse was covered with wounds, including head injuries, chest injuries, genital genital anal injuries, lower extremity injuries, upper extremity injuries, and back injuries. The body had multiple irregular gouging wounds, which indicated that he was moving while being stabbed. The anus was dilated. Penal injuries indicated oral sex had been performed on him. His wrists and ankles had abrasions where he struggled against the bindings. Injuries to his neck indicated his face had been stomped into the mud. He also had drowned. Chris's corpse also had injuries indicating that he had been forced into oral sex. His head had scratches, abrasions, and a punched out area. One eyelid had a contusion. There was a scrape on the back of the neck. The inner thighs had diagonal cuts. The back of the skull appeared to have been struck by a stick the size of a broomstick. The skin of the pedis, the scrotal sac, and testes had been removed. There were cuts around the anus, apparently made by a serrated blade while he was still alive. Unlike the other two, Christopher had defensive wounds and had bled to death before being placed in the water. The bicycles were found nearby after investigators dragged three ten-mile bayou for evidence. Talk of satanic rites held in Robin Hood Hills began to circulate immediately among the crowd gathered at the dead end of North 14th Street near the crime scene. So there was a little bit of satanic panic going on, admittedly. Residents mentioned strange groups of people hanging out in the woods, possibly cult and cult involved. Some described occult signs and markers. Steve Jones, the assistant juvenile probation officer who first cited the floating tennis shoe, and his supervisor, Jerry Driver, had been concerned about occult activity and had investigated a number of reports with occult overtones in the preceding months. Uh, among Jones' clients had been Baldwin and Eccles' girlfriend, Dominitier. Jones was convinced that the murders, quote, appeared to have overtones of occult sacrifice, unquote, an opinion shared by West Memphis Police Department Lieutenant James Sudbury. 
On May 7th, the day after the bodies were discovered, Jones and Sudbury visited the Eccles home and talked to Damien in his bedroom after receiving permission from his parents, Pamela and Joe Hutchinson. Sudbury's notes gave no specifics on Eccles' responses, though he noted that Eccles had a tattoo, quote, had a tattoo on his chest of a five-pointed star or pentagram, unquote. Jones observed that tennis shoes and boots habitually worn by Eccles were caked in mud, but the items were not taken into evidence at that time. Police received a tip, also on May 7th, that the pastor at Lakeshore Baptist Church, Dennis Engel, was concerned about devil worshipers at Lakeshore. On May 9th, Engel told Officer Shane Griffith that Damien Eccles, who had a girlfriend named Domini Alyatir, was, quote, supposed to be involved in, quote, in cults, unquote, and wore boots with 666 written on them. A Lakeshore residence familiar with Eccles, Darlene Hollingsworth, reported on May 9th that she had seen Eccles and Tear dressed in muddy, dressed in dirty clothes, walking in the vicinity of the murders on the on May 5th. She also reported suspicious activity that night by LG Hollingsworth, a teenage relative who was friends with Eccles and Tear. Shane Griffith and Bill Durham talked to Eccles, Baldwin, and Tear on the afternoon of May 9th in the front yard of the Baldwin home. West Memphis police were using a behavior analysis interview guide furnished by the FBI to help identify possible suspects during initial questioning. Some of Eccles' answers fit the profile of a guilty suspect. Eccles, for example, shared his insight that the killer would be happy about his crimes. The happiest quote, a quote about his crimes, as well as a number of other responses consistent with those of a guilty suspect. Uh, Baldwin's interview was cut short when his mother arrived and angri angrily refused to let her son talk to police. This also raised officers' suspicions. On May 10th, four days after the bodies were found, Ridge questioned Eccles about how he thought the boys died. Quote, he stated that the bodies probably died, the boys probably died of mutilation. Some guy had cut the bodies up, heard that they were in the water, they may have drowned. He said at least one was cut up more than the others. Now, there was no, this knowledge that there was one cut up more than the others was not public knowledge. If any, uh, the uh, press coverage indicated they were all sexually mutilated and otherwise all cut up. So this ran totally counter to what was being floated around in, in, in the public uh, through the news media. During, uh, okay, end of quote. During Eccles' trial, Ridge testified that the fact that, Eccles, that Chris had been cut up more than the other two was not known to the public when Eccles made that statement, which is what I just said. Eccles claimed he learned about the injuries from reading newspapers, a statement easily proven false. A front-page story in the commercial appeal the day after the bodies had been found had quoted an Arkansas state police bulletin state, saying that a sharp instrument had been used to sexually mutilate the three boys. The West Memphis Police Department had deliberately let the misinformation stand with the idea that it would help investigators weed out false confessions. 
On cross-examination at trial, Eccles admitted that none of the newspaper articles mentioned one, vi one victim being more mutilated than the others. He admitted he had not read such a fact in a newspaper. Eccles had not been considered a suspect prior to the May 10th interview, but according to Ridge, his answers on May 10th turned him into a suspect. Those answers and his explanations at, of them at trial helped convict him. Eccles said the boys had been placed in water possibly because the assailant urinated into their mouths. West Memphis police did not find out about urine in the stomachs of two of the boys until Gary Gitchell was informed of this by phone on May 16th. The information was deliberately withheld from reports to minimize information leaks. Now, later on, this whole idea that there's urine in the stomach, there's some unknown fluids in two of the stomachs. We're not really sure what that, it was not determined at that time what those fluids actually were. And at this point, we don't know. It was not conclusively determined to be urine and certainly wasn't conclusively proven to be urine from any of the three killers. Eccles gave conflicting statements about his whereabouts on May 5th. He told police on May 9th that Jason Dominey and he had gone to Jason, Jason's uncle's house so Jason could mow the lawn, and that Damien had called his father to pick all three of them up at 6 p.m. when all three were taken home. On May 10th, Eccles said he and Dominey had left Jason at the uncle's house, gone to a laundromat to call his mother, who drove Dominie to her mother's house and then drove Damien, his father, and his sister over to visit family friends Randy and Susan Sanders from 3 to 6 p.m. Damien said he then was at home talking on the phone with a girl living in Tennessee, Holly George, until 11 p.m. The 13-year-old would tell police that she did not talk to Eccles that evening. Uh, to go on to further go into this, the Sanders, Randy and Susan Sanders, uh, didn't see Damien and his, his family from three to six p.m. that afternoon. Certainly didn't testify to that fact. They they went to a, 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 a casino that evening, uh, and uh, Eccles and his family supposedly went over there around seven p.m. or so and stayed stayed for a while to what to. to because Michelle Eccles was interested in a television show that was on, uh, and that but they apparently got home around eight, so they were gone. They were there from roughly seven or around seven to well, they were back home well before eight that evening. Uh, and this is supposedly one of his other big alibis at the time, though it fell apart. It fell apart at trial, and the the phone call girls. Uh, Holly George, Jennifer Bearden, Heather Clyatt, you could throw in Dominie Tear. None of, none of them provided an alibi for uh, Damien Eccles. But he still he no longer cites the Sanders visit but in his excuse, his explanations for where he might have been at, been at that time. But, uh, you know, when he's really pressed about where, where he might have been that evening or what is, you know, what... What evidence there is of his innocence, he'll throw up the uh, the, the so-called phones phone calls as as alibis, and of course none of them none of them offer an alibi.
If anything, they build a case for his guilt. Okay, back to my text. On the stand, Eccles admitted changing times on the Sanders visit to fit whatever narrative he was trying to build. This did not serve him well with the jury, by the way. On May 10th, Eccles described the probable motives and reactions of the killers with such insight that investigators felt he had special knowledge about the crime. Eccles' explanation of occult beliefs and ritual practices closely fit investigators developing theories that the murders had ritualistic and perhaps occult ends. Eccles then went, underwent a polygraph exam. Deception was indicated and is no answers to five of the ten questions. At any time Wednesday or Wednesday night, were you in Robin Hood Hills? Were you present when those boys were killed? Did you kill any of those three boys? Do you know who killed those three boys? Do you suspect anyone of having killed those three boys? Eccles answered no to all those questions, and the polygraphs indicated that he was lying, which is why it's known as a lie detector. Despite the results, Eccles at first continued to deny involvement in the killings and then ceased to deny his involvement. And apparently he also threw up. <laughs> uh, I didn't, ha didn't put that in the book, but it's came, I, I, either I neglected to put that in or I came across that fact later, but he, he apparently threw up uh, uh, while, this inter while this interrogation by the police was going on. Uh, His, he ceased to deny his involvement, which Bill Durham considered admission through absence of denial. Now, that, that may sound like some sort of bull, but, you know, apparently, you know, when police are doing inter, uh, interrogations and people clam up, it's usually regarded as evidence that they're trying to hide something that, in fact, they just might be guilty. It's kind of common sense if you think about it. Durham, who administered the polygraph, asked him what he was afraid of. Eccles replied, the electric chair. Eccles told officers, I will tell you all about it if you will let me talk to my mother. After talking to his mother, he again denied involvement and agreed with Durham's assessment that he would never admit to the crime. Police also talked that day to L.G. Hollingsworth, who named Eccles as a likely suspect. Police also recorded an expanded statement from Narlene Hollingsworth concerning how she and her family had seen Eccles near the crime scene. In just the first few days of the investigation, Eccles had fueled suspicions in his initial interviews with police by making provocative statements and showing special knowledge and insight into the murders. Then he failed a lie detector test, and further manipulated and taunted investigators. Then an, in, then an eyewitness placed him near the scene of the crime. As the investigation continued, new evidence, including a confession to a friend, continued to grow against Eccles. So, that runs totally counter, counter to the narrative that's put out there that they just sort of arbitrarily picked Damien Eccles out of all the all world of possible suspects because he wore black t-shirts, listened to Metallica, 
and had a funny looking haircut. That's it. That's it for this week. Uh, I do intend to do this on a regular basis, hopefully a weekly basis. And uh, good evening to y'all. Happy New Year. Talk to you soon. Hello?